Hi, everyone. This is Matt Tullis. Just a reminder that you can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or find links to all our episodes at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is also now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at gangrypodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. This week on Gangry the Podcast, I'll talk with Stephen Roderick. Roderick wrote the story, The Misfits, which ran in the January 10th issue of the New York Times Magazine. Online, you can find that story titled, Here is What Happens When You Cast Lindsay Lohan in Your Movie. Roderick was on the set for the entire filming of the movie, The Canyons, a micro-budget film that somehow landed Lohan as one of its stars. Roderick has also written a book titled The Magical Stranger, A Son's Journey into His Father's Life. The book will be published by Harper in May. It's about Navy pilot Peter Roderick, who died when his plane crashed in the Indian Ocean. He left behind a devastated wife, two daughters, and a 13-year-old Stephen. We have linked to a whole host of Stephen Roderick stories on our website, www.gangraythepodcast.com. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, th- thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, can we start things off by having you read you know, a section of, of your story? Uh, here is what happens when you cast Lindsay Lohan in your movie. Sure. Um, the first thing I'll say is the story is called in the magazine The Misfits, which is... Uh, what I thought was a, uh, a more interesting title and uh, uh, a little different than what they need to grab uh, readers on the web. But uh, I'm going to read from the um, uh, middle part of the story where uh, Lindsay Lohan has been cast in the movie, but she's now about to be fired from the movie. Okay, um, So here it goes. Filming was scheduled to start in less than a week, so Schrader arranged for Dean and Lohan to meet him at Pretty Bird Studios to map out the movie's sex scenes. Lohan canceled the first day, but promised she'd be there the next morning, a Sunday. She never showed. Schrader and Pope texted and left left messages on her phone. There was no answer. Schrader thought about what he should do. Right now, he had the upper hand. There really was an actress waiting in Paris. But once they started shooting, he'd lose the power. Lohan could hold the whole entire production hostage, so he fired her. He went back to his room at the Orlando Hotel in Beverly Hills and left it to Pope to deliver the bad news. Pope finally reached Lohan, telling her she was done. Lohan began to cry and begged for another chance. Pope told her that Schrader had made up his mind. So Lohan headed for the Orlando. She pounded on doors until she found Schrader's room. As she banged on his door, she she texted him manically. Schrader could hear her crying but wouldn't let her in. He texted her instead, Lindsay, go home. The hotel manager rang up to ask if, she, if he should call the cops. Schrader told him no and sat down in his bed. Lohan stayed out in the hall sobbing for another 90 minutes before she finally left. Eventually, the director called Pope and asked him to gather everyone at Pretty Bird to watch Lohan and the French actress's screen test again. Everyone agreed that Lohan was exponentially better. Schrader decided he'd give her one more chance. Some of the production thought this was Schrader's endgame all along, a strategy to get her back in line. That night, Pope, Lohan, and Schrader met at the Churchill, a bar at the Orlando. A, water, a waiter brought them drinks, coffee for Lohan, a Manhattan for Schrader, a vodka soda for Pope. They all settled over the table. Finally, Schrader picked up his glass. I need a drink. 
Lohan laughed and wiped tears from her eyes. She explained that she missed the meeting at Pretty Bird because she had been discussing the script with Nolan Funk until 3 a.m. and then took a sleeping pill. Trader laid down the law. One more meltdown and she was gone. If she thought she was unhorrible now, wait till he threw her off her micro-budget. Trader thought Lohan's weakness wasn't drugs, although he counseled her on the math of when to take sleep aids, but fear of being alone. She needed people in chaos around her 24-7. The idea of being by herself scared the hell out of her. This is uh, such an interesting story, and and I don't I don't think you see enough of stories like this, uh, kind of a behind the scenes of the making of of a movie, uh, especially with one with, with a with a fairly big name star. Can you talk a little bit about how this entire story came together and how you ended up with I guess the access that you had? Sure, um, I'd, I'd known Paul Schrader, the director, just a little bit from two or three years ago when he was uh, trying to direct a movie. Uh, with uh, Bollywood money from from India, and that pro- project fell through. And we stayed in touch a little bit, emailed maybe once a year or something like that. And then I read somewhere online about the Canyons and about this film that he was going to make, that they were raising money through Kickstarter, and that they were going to cast Lohan and James Dean, this porn star, as the male lead. And uh, it was a Saturday, and I just emailed him and said, hey, um, would love to write about it. And I also said, look, if this is going to work, I'm going to have to have almost complete access to the to the site. It can't just be one day here, one day there. And he said, well, let me think about it for a while. And he thought about it for about an hour and he emailed me back and he said, let's do it. And he, he uh, to his credit, uh, he ran air interference for me. I mean, he, uh, Lindsay's people were not on board, thought it was a terrible idea. And he said, well, that's fine. I respect that. I'll just have to recast the part if she's not comfortable with it. So that'll be the rare time that a director has chosen a reporter over the talent. What was it like being on the set? I, I imagine you weren't always uh, the most welcome person there. And uh, what was that like? Uh, and, and have there been other instances in your reporting career when that's been the case? Oh, there's been a ton of other uh, examples where I was not welcome. But this this one, I actually was pretty much welcome. And there was one day where her publicist was there, and he tried to kind of read me the riot act. But uh, after that, uh, people were, were happy to have me there. And, um, you know, it was a very small crew, so I was just sort of embedded with them, standing behind the monitors, watching them film 12 hours a day. So, um, yeah, once they got over the initial hurdle, the, the, everyone couldn't have been nicer. When you uh, when, when you started reporting on this, can you talk a bit of, a little bit about like, did you know where this was going to be published when you started writing it, or was this something that you wrote and then pitched, or how did that work? No, no, I, I actually um, I had uh, you know usually you, uh, it was for the Times Magazine. Usually you have a kind of long uh, pitch letter or pitch email that you send your editor. This is why I want to do this. This is why this is important. Um, but this one, like I said, the, the idea came up on a Saturday and it was one of those few stories where I was like, you know, I feel comfortable pitching this to Schrader on a Saturday without even having my editor sign off on it. It seemed like such a goldmine of a story. So come Monday, I emailed uh, Hugo Lindgren, the editor-in-chief, and Sheila Glazer, my story editor, and said, look, uh, you know, I think I said Lohan, Schrader, Brady Sinellis, porn star making a movie and they said well we got to do that so so that one that one was one of the easier ones to get assigned uh did, did it go about as you expected or uh did, did the movie shape up differently than you thought it might 
Well, I don't know if it shaped up differently. I mean, I, you knew with the kind of volatile personalities involved, something was going to happen. You obviously couldn't predict what specifically specifically was going to happen, but you know, Schrader is a very uh, high-strung personality, and you know, Lin- Lindsay's issues are well documented, and and Brett, you know, is you know writes about this kind of nihilistic world all the time. So you put all of them together. Yeah, like I said, I didn't know what was going to happen, but you 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 realize it was not going to be just a kind of leisurely, you know, walk through through a park. Did uh, did you have a plan? I mean, I was just reading it and I was wondering, you know, what happens if this is, ends up being a completely normal, nothing goes crazy? What, what was your plan if that if everybody somehow acted sane for once? Well, I mean, I've done a few of these stories, and I, I did a story on uh, Judd Apatow when he was making the movie Knocked Up, and he used to joke every day when I'd, uh, I'd show up. He's like, ah, this is the day that Roderick thinks that Judd's going to throw a phone at somebody. He's just waiting for me to throw a phone at somebody. And he never threw a phone at anybody, and that set was you know, relatively mild, but... It, you don't need, you know, a complete meltdown for interesting things to happen. I mean, just watching how a film gets made, uh, you, you know, it usually involves smart and interesting people. So something's going to happen. It doesn't have to be, you know, people getting fired or quitting or not showing up. It can be, you know, disputes about the script or just, just the way they shoot a scene or something like that. A, a, a thousand things can make it interesting. Yeah. You've written, so you've written a lot about celebrities and movies and that type of thing, but you've also written some some pieces like the oil boom up in the Dakotas. Um, how does your reporting differ when you're doing something uh, like that versus when you're doing a piece that's more celebrity-centered? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I would make a distinction between, I mean, I have done a, a fair bit of celebrity profiles of, you know, Jeff Bridges or Michael Douglas or something like that, but I wouldn't put the story on the canyons into that category. I mean, the, the reporting on the canyon stories was in some ways very, very similar to the st- story I wrote about the Boomtown. Both of them, I basically went somewhere for 20, 22 days, was there for 12 or 14 hours a day talking to people, watching things. So so that that's a little bit different. I mean, you know, every, everyone, not everyone, but, you know, a lot of people, when you reach, where when you're writing for men's magazines, you have to kind of, you know, do the celebrity profile every once in a while. And I actually enjoy them if they're usually interesting people. I mean, I've, I've been very lucky. The celebrity profiles I've had to do, people have usually been very gracious about their time. And I think one of the good things about writing for Men's Journal is it's uh, a slightly older audience. And um, the celebrities that I've had, that I've profiled, like, say, Jeff Bridges or, or, or Michael Douglas, they've had a career and they've had a life and there's a lot to play off of. You're not having to write about you know, a 23-year-old actor or actress where you're like, you know, you've done two movies. I don't know, you know, where I'm going to go with this for 5,000 words. There's a lot, lot to play off of. But, um, you know, the, the Boomtown story and, and the Lohan story, they're both just about basically showing up and just putting the time in and just meeting people and talking to them and getting them comfortable where they would just let you hang around and watch them work and then go from there. Can you talk a little bit about what the freelancing life is like in terms of, um, I, I know when uh, when we were setting this up, I asked if you were going to be available at some point in time, like three or four weeks yeah, <laughs> in advance, yeah. and, and you were like, "I have no idea." Can you talk a little bit about what that you know the freelance life is like? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm in a little bit better position where I'm a, I am a, basically a contract writer for both Men's Journal and 
the Times Magazine where I'm supposed to do X number of pieces for each of them. But it is, I mean, it is a, um, it's a, it's, it's a great life, but it's, it's very unpredictable. I, I, I always kind of equate it to like a uh, permanent grad school where it's, you get an assignment and for two weeks you, you kind of read about the subject, you do a little bit, but you're not really, you know, busting your ass that much. Week three or four, you're kind of kicking the gear. And then week five and six is when you get the fear of God and you're putting in the 14 hour days and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I always, it's, I say it's, it beats working for a living, you know, but, uh, you have to be able to, uh, roll, you know, roll with punches and just, yeah, you get a call on Tuesday. I need you to be in Texas on Thursday or something like that. So, um, you have to have a, 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 a giant amount of flexibility. Where was your first journalism job at? Uh, I wrote, uh, I, I began after college and uh, grad school, I uh, worked as a speechwriter in uh, Illinois politics for a couple of years, um, and then I started freelancing for the for New City, which is an alternative weekly in Chicago, and um, from there I just, uh, I send an application into the New Republic, and they have a program where they hire reporter researchers, uh, which are basically paid interns uh, for, you know, for a year, and... I think I was the uh, I was the oldest intern. You know, most of the interns were twenty, twenty one. I was I was twenty five at the time, and um, it was a great experience. And that's just kind of where I started from. Uh, can we uh, kind of change gears and 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 talk about your book, uh, which is sure. coming out in May? Uh, it's called "The Magical Stranger: A Son's Journey into His Father's Life." Can you talk a little bit a, a little bit about that? Yeah, it's. Um, my father was a uh, a pilot in the Navy, a uh, Naval Academy graduate who in um, uh, 1979, uh, 4th of July 1979, became uh, the skipper of his squadron, VAQ-135, and um, uh, about three or four months after that, he was, uh, he was killed in a plane crash in the Indian Ocean um, when I was 13, and... I would say the book is half kind of a memoir looking back at his life and what it was like to grow up the son of a pilot and then the you know the son of a you know a, of a, you know, a boy without a father and half of it's that and the other half is um I followed his old squadron VAQ135 for about 18 months to 2 years as they were uh, deploying to the you know the Arabian Sea to fly missions over Afghanistan, so it's kind of a, a mixture of, of memoir and reported stuff. Uh, did you report differently for for a memoir than you would have a, a magazine piece? Um, well, for the reported stuff, no. I mean, the report stuff was you know they're all based in this uh, small uh, small area up in the San Juan Islands called Woodby Island, which is where I grew up for a number of years, and I. I'd go up there and basically live for a month or two uh, over the past two or three years. So that part was no different than other reporting. It's just you know more more intensive and you know more you know stretched over a longer period of time. Uh, the memoir stuff, you know, it's it's your memory, and but at the same time, I I talked to many people who knew my father to see if my memories were correct and make sure dates were correct and 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 stuff like that. So. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, you know, childhood memories that I have, I have two sisters, they remember them slightly different or anything. You're, you're always going to have a, your memory is sort of subjective thing. So 
the memory part is subjective. The, the facts and like, you know, about my dad's accident, which I investigated and other stuff like that. You know, I, I, I try to apply the same kind of rigor that I do to my regular reporting. Uh, what was the biggest challenge in terms of, of the book for you? Um, well, I mean, it just, uh, a part of it was living with the material for two, two and a half years. I mean, the two, um, you know, to be sp spending a couple of years of your life just kind of ruminating on your dead father is, um, it, it's tough. It was tough. And, um, there was, uh, you know, this was a reason why I didn't do the book, say 10 years ago. I'd been thinking about doing the book for a long time and I finally, you know, jumped off the cliff, but yeah, you're just, you know, you're trying to approach it as a reporter, but you're going, you know, you're spending a few weeks going through, you know, I did freedom of information requests and got my dad's you know, accident reports and you're trying to piece it together and kind of do, you know, a recreation of his last flight to see, you know, what went wrong or whose fault it was. So, um, you know, you, you can kind of get buried in the, in the, in the, in the, in the data, but it'll come back and hit you that, you know, this is your father that you're, you know, you're looking at his, you know, death certificate and, you know, the, the accounting of his last 12 hours and stuff like that. So it was, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't always easy. I'm really glad that I did it. And, um, one of the things I did to try to kind of ease the, the burden of it was, you know, I kept doing some magazine stuff so that I could kind of step away from it for a month or so at a time. Do you have uh, anything you're working on right now that you could uh, talk about? Uh, I am working on a profile right now, but uh, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sounds uh, good. Yeah. I, there's, a, there's a couple things I'm working on right now. Um, uh, but, yeah, it, it, probably best to, to keep it under my hat for now. Sounds good. Hey, thanks, Stephen, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We've been talking with Stephen Roderick. He wrote the story, The Misfits, which was ran in the New York Times Magazine on January 10th and is titled on the web, Here is What Happens When You Cast Lindsay Lohan in Your Movie. He also has a book coming out in May. It's called The Magical Stranger, A Son's Journey into His Father's Life. We've linked to several Stephen stories on www.gangraythepodcast.com. Join me next time when I talk with Jesse Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein wrote the story, Do We Really Want to Live Without the Post Office, in the February issue of Esquire. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangray Podcast. We also have a website. It's www.gangraythepodcast.com. Gangray the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University. This episode was produced by Glenn Battishill and Steve Cease. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. I'm your host, Matt Tullis.